Oh, <laughs> nice to be with you all. <clears throat> so there's a certain ground rule for this evening. Just easy questions. <laughs> I'm out of practice. <laughs> uh, so if you have any questions. I can hear you. <coughs> First, you. <coughs> uh, what do you mean by the three types and four, four kinds? I don't really, I'm not, uh, that's not, that's not a framework I'm, I'm oh. connecting with. Okay, so I'm not, uh, <coughs> I haven't really used that particular framework very much, but <coughs> as I understand at least part of the question, um, I think one of the, <coughs> one of the problems or the uh, challenges is that the word intention in English <coughs> can refer to different things, you know, and so we use the same word. So for example, the intention on a moment-to-moment -moment level, like intention to move or intention to stand, or intention to walk, that's almost like, <coughs> like a, an energetic impulse to initiate an action, right? And so you can feel a kind of about to do something and then the doing of it. So it's, it's like a spark plug or something. You know, it, it initiates the action. But we also use the word intention <clears throat> in a more overarching way. Uh, and we could think of it either as the motivation to do something or the goal. We have an intention to accomplish something. So it's an intention as a goal or intention as a motivation. Uh, so those are those are quite different things, and I think we just want to be aware of uh, each of them as they arise. Um, one of the interesting things about the intention as the energetic impulse, which I found to be very interesting in my own practice. So for example, in walking, in walking meditation or just walking about, intention has to be continually arising. Because if you're taking a step and the intention stops in the middle of the step, 
the movement will stop. The intention is what's keeping the movement going. And so the example is given, this wasn't given, <coughs> this example is not from the Buddhist time. Uh, but it's like plugging an electric appliance into an outlet. <laughs> uh, you know, if you take the plug out, whatever the appliance is, stops working. So it needs the constant flow of electricity. In the same way, there needs to be a constant flow of intention to keep an activity going. So one time I was, I was just on a retreat, self-retreat, and I was doing walking practice, not the super slow walking, I was just like stepping, stepping, stepping. Uh, and I became interested in noticing the ongoing flow of intention. You know, realizing that that's what was needed to keep the movement happening. And so as I, as I focused in on that quality of the flow of intention, first I began to feel the expression of it in a particular place in my body, even though it's a mental factor. Uh, many, many mental qualities find expression in some kind of bodily sensation. So I began to notice uh, some aspect of the intention, sort of in the area of the heart, and it almost felt like a little intention motor. Go, you know, and it just kept me walking. So first, just that investigation was interesting, but what really became illuminating in that little experiment was realizing how easy it is to unknowingly or unconsciously be identified with intention. You know, so the, the sense of self is easily uh, created when we're identified with this flow of intentions that keeps activity going on, and that gives rise to the sense, well, I'm walking, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. As I became mindful of that intention motor, it really highlighted the impersonal, non-self nature of intention. And it felt like that was just, just one little piece of disentangling the sense of self in the midst of our ordinary activities, you know, and to see the impersonality of it. Uh, so that was, that was interesting, and you might want to just experiment with that. As you know, the Buddha gave a lot of importance to the recognition and the understanding of intention. So that's on this moment-to-moment -moment level, of what's it's like the electric current that keeps everything going. Of course, it's must be obvious to you by now that <coughs> intention in the meaning of motivation, you know, or of aspiration, the intention uh, in doing something, the motivation in doing something, uh, it's hugely important to be aware of that and to see whether the motivation is wholesome or unwholesome. You know, because there are a lot of consequences depending on which it is. So that takes a lot of sensitivity. And, and it, takes a lot of, it takes a lot of honesty. Uh, 
you know, I think... <coughs> Maybe maybe you don't fall into this category, but I think that very often, or it's not uncommon, to think that our motivations are basically good, and we assume that, and they're probably mostly good, but they're probably not always good. You know, and so it takes it takes a real willingness and an honesty just to really take a look at okay, well what is the motivation? You know, you as you go as you're going through the food line, how much does one take? And is it is it for just the health of the body, or does some desire and greed come up in the mind, you know, with certain foods? Uh, a very good place to observe this, I'm jumping ahead about a week now, because it's not so much while you're on retreat, but when you'll be coming out of retreat, an amazingly fruitful place to watch this kind of intention as motivation is in speech. Huge, you know, and if we could really be aware of our motive before we speak, we'd probably speak a lot less. Uh, so these are some of the thoughts I have. So is the yes. So the question was about uh, the map of progress, the the progress of insight, and the various stages of insight that one goes through, and whether this, whether I feel that this is a useful map, whether it's uh, good for people to meditators to know about this. In my experience, uh, in fact, we were just talking about it at lunch today. Um, it seems that uh, for some meditators, whether they know about it or not, as they're practicing and are coming in to describe their practice, <coughs> they'll describe it pretty classically and they'll just be describing the different stages of insight as, as the practice deepens. Other people, it's not how they describe their practice, <coughs> uh, but there can still be the same sense of deepening of their practice. My experience has been that 
So some fall in just to that classical progress of insight unfolding. Others will be describing their practice and the, the deepening of it more in terms of uh, just increasing levels of letting go of clinging. You know, and so that's, that's how it will be described as they come into that practice. And, and one can both see it in oneself, but also the teacher can really observe that. You know, how people are just letting go and letting go and letting go. And so over all these years, you know, of teaching, I've really seen basically those two main streams of how people describe their practice. Um, so I think it's helpful to understand that it is a map, but it's not the only map. Uh, I think it's mostly not useful to know. Uh, just as an example, so I had the misfortune <coughs> of having read all about it before I started my practice. <laughs> and even within like the first, you know, I don't know, the first few weeks or month of my practice in India, oh yeah, I'm here, oh yeah, no, now I'm at this stage and this stage and this stage, because I wasn't at any of the stages. <laughs> But I had so, those concepts were so in my mind and I was so locked into that map that I was really misinterpreting a lot of my experience. And uh, it can set up a lot of expectation or... Of course, if one already does know the map, uh, you can't really unknow it. <laughs> but I would be watchful... Um, of how much um, I would, I would be, I would be really mindful of uh, the interpreting of one's experience in terms of that, as you're going along. So during my practice, I made, I had one, one particular mental note. practice assessment tape, you know, because I would just see my mind, it was judging, it was assessing my own practice. And I'd have lots of judgments, both good and bad and whatever, assessing the practice. Of course, when we're caught in that, we're not really practicing. We're just caught up in our interpretation, you know, of what's happening. And uh, it was not helpful. Um, also, it's sometimes, even for experienced teachers and people who have, are <coughs> sort of immersed in that system, it, it's often difficult to tell which stage one is at because there are qualities um, for example, there are certain qualities at the stage of things arising and passing away with this very strong mindfulness and equanimity and you know, it's really a good time in practice, very powerful practice. But some of those same qualities are also found in the later stages of equanimity. And it's easy to just <coughs> be misinterpreting. So one of the things Saida Upandita would say, you know, if 
if one does know the map and somehow is, you know, trying to assess, or for a teacher, you know, trying to get a sense of where somebody's at, uh, and there's some doubt of whether it's a higher or lower stage, he said, always assume it's the lower. <laughs> I think that was, it's good advice. I think it's mo- that map is most useful in retrospect. You know, after one has really, t- you know, been immersed in practice for however long, six weeks or three months or five years, <coughs> you know, and then you're looking back at your various experiences. So in looking back, then it might give you a sense of... <coughs> uh, you know, where one is in the practice. But it's delicate. I've seen a lot of people get really tied up in knots about <coughs> what stage in this or that. So, <coughs> so the question is about doubt and uh, being caught in indecision, you know, when certain choices come up. And sometimes it's in the context of a moral dilemma of trying to suss out which is the wholesome or which is the unwholesome. So, and, and how the mind can get really obsessed about that. So there are a couple of things um, with regard to this. One, if there's the doubt of just the mind feeling confused, what is going on, you know, and there's just not a lot of clarity and there's a lot of doubt, am I doing the practice right, or that kind of doubt. That doubt is actually very, uh, it's very simple to remedy because just now, if you, if you feel your hands touching one another, is there any doubt in the mind about the awareness of that sensation? No. Or just the awareness of a breath. You know, if we're just feeling an in-breath or a rising movement, and the mind is just totally with the moment's experience, there's no doubt. Right? It, it's very clear. The doubt starts coming when we lose contact with the moment's experience and the mind spins out in thinking. So when, when that's happening, if you can recognize it and then just come back to the simplicity of touching, 
breathing, just coming back right to the simplicity of the moment's experience, the doubt is no longer there. Uh, So that's relatively simple, although sometimes it's hard to remember to do that because doubt is so seductive. I don't know that, you know, in, in the Dharma talks, anybody mentioned that the reason doubt is so seductive is because it comes masquerading as wisdom. You know, the, the tone of voice in the mind, of the doubting mind, sounds very wise. Well, what should I be doing? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Which is better? Whatever, how, whatever form our own takes, our own doubts take. So we have to really pay attention to not, not being seduced by the masquerade of wisdom and to see doubt as doubt. Because as soon as you recognize that that's what it is, then it's easy to apply the remedy of just coming back to the moment. That, that's the doubt of confusion. Connection to the moment, the mind is really not confused in that. When it's the doubt of not knowing, you know, two choices, well, should I do this, should I do that? And this comes up not only in practice, but maybe even more in life. You know, when in our life situation where there's a choice and it's just not clear which is the right thing to do. I had a mini Satori around that issue, and it really, because I was, I was confronting a situation like that, where there was like a juncture in my life, and there were two choices, and I just didn't know this, or this, or this, or this. And at a certain point, and I was driving myself crazy, trying to, th- okay, I have to decide. It was kind of a moment of revelation when I realized that it's okay not to know. That sometimes we don't know until we know. You know, and so we're faced with a choice and we don't know. And to get okay with not knowing, and so that became a little mantra for me. It's okay not to know. And it's Something you might look at, and maybe this does not apply to all of you, but I found until that moment, and then in looking back, I realized how uncomfortable the feeling of not knowing was. And it was that discomfort which kept driving me to think, okay, I have to to make a decision because it's too uncomfortable not to know. So it was a, a great relief to just, okay, it's okay not to know. And at a certain point, the decision will be made either because you get some clarity about it or the time passes for having made the decision and so the decision will be made in that way. There was a student, do you know who Krishnamurti was? A great Indian teacher. And, uh, <coughs> So he had a student, a woman named Vimala Thakkar. And 
Krishnamurti wanted her to begin teaching, and she was very reluctant. She, she didn't want to, and he kept urging her, and she, <coughs> she wouldn't do it. And finally, <coughs> he said to her, the reason you don't want to start teaching is you're afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. You know, and I think that could be playing in, in <coughs> even what you described, you know, here on retreat, during the course of the day, lots of little choice points. So instead of being caught up in the doubting mind and the kind of obsessing which is right, I think if a decision has to be made in the moment, it's like you take your best guess at what's wholesome and then you pay attention. And you'll see, oh, that was that was a good decision, or that wasn't, you know. And you really learn something from that. Uh, so I think the important thing is simply to free the mind from being caught in the wavering of the perplexity, you know, either in the sense of it's okay not to know, or just making a choice and then paying attention to what the effect is, you know, and so we learn from our mistakes, if it was a mistake, or and or really bringing the mind back in that point very precisely to the moment's experience and seeing <coughs> if the clarity of that actually allows for a, a clear understanding to emerge. It's really important. I can't uh, emphasize enough how important it is to recognize doubt as a hindrance. Because of all the hindrances, you know, it's said, and I've experienced this and observed it in others, doubt is the most dangerous in terms of the practice. Because with all the others, whether it's desire or aversion or sleepiness, restlessness even, the mind is <coughs> kind of in the ballpark of the experience. It's not relating to it in a skillful way, but it's kind of there with what's happening. You know, maybe with greed or aversion, but with doubt, we're not even in the ballpark. You know, the mind is just caught up in some mental proliferation, but it's very seductive. You know, and that, so we, we really need to learn to recognize it and to name it. Oh, this is the doubting mind. And then approach it either in some of the ways I mentioned, or maybe you'll be creative and find some other ways. But it's really important to see it, to name it, to disidentify with the doubt. Because as long as we're caught in that, um, we don't go anyplace. There was one yogi on a three-month retreat many years ago, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. He spent three months, should I do metta or vipassana? <laughs> and every interview, well, I'll just choose one, it doesn't really matter. 
<laughs> they're both great. And then he, he, you know, he would do one f- for a day, and then again the day. It was it was a classic example of the dangers of doubt, you know, because he couldn't land. So it, it's really important to keep an eye out for it and to be able to recognize it. Question? Ah, yes. Yeah. Thank you. My question uh, is uh, about wanting and not wanting. Is is it the lack that drives wanting or not wanting? And um, what can you do to to ease the lack, the experience of? Okay, so the question is about wanting and not wanting, and whether it's a certain feeling of lack, lacking something that is driving the wanting, and what one can do about that. Okay, so this question goes to the heart of what the Buddha taught, right, right in that question. Uh, the Four Noble Truths are all in that question, uh, and it's of great interest to me. So, sometimes the feeling of lack is obvious, you know, and, and uh, that's we can see how that is driving a wanting or a craving. Sometimes <coughs> it's simply th- the seduction of some pleasure. You know, we, we may be feeling totally fine. And then the thought arises, well, this is, this is a common, I've had this often on retreat. I can be doing, you know, practicing sitting or walking and then the thought will come, oh, a cup of tea. Now, that would be nice. And I really wasn't feeling a lack. But the thought came and then there was a certain seduction. You know, that'll be pleasant. And then I'd be mindful and the desire would go away. And then about three and a half seconds later, <laughs> the thought would come, oh, cup of tea. And I'd know it would go away. And so this could go on for quite a while. <laughs> It was very humbling by the 11th or 12th time when it comes up and then you watch yourself going for the cup of tea. (laughs) So the power of the desire, the power of the craving is strong. Sometimes the image is like, you know, a blade of grass that'll come up through concrete. It's it's very small, but it (laughs) it has a deep driving force to it. So desire or craving is like that. One of the things in my practice, and this, this is something I've been exploring recently, <coughs> just in the last few years, really, uh, of understanding craving not about, or not, not limited to kind of these pleasant, ex- you know, ideas of a pleasant experience that uh, 
we'll enjoy, but You know, the Buddha talked about three kinds of craving, craving for sense pleasures, craving for becoming, and craving for non-becoming. So I began to see in my meditation, and I'm sure that you've had this experience because it's so, so common, that we can be doing the practice. We're, we're in this moment, we're in the moment, but we're with this in order for this. It's like we're leaning into the process, right? We're with the in-breath in order to feel the out-breath, or we're, we're with the breath in order to feel more calm, or in order to concentrate. So I call it the in order to mind. And it's kind of leaning into the next moment. So I had been noticing this for years in my practice. You know how there's a wanting or a craving for this to become this. We're with the pain in order for it to ease. Or we're with the good feeling in order for it to continue. So all of that I'm calling craving for becoming. So just in the last few years, there were two uh, teachings from the suttas that came to mind as I was sitting that had a really profound effect on that deeply conditioned kind of craving, of wanting, of desiring. And the first was, uh, there's one discourse where the Buddha used some images to describe the five aggregates. So he used the image of the body, the physical elements, as a heap of foam you know, like foam on water. Just, uh, and so all the sensations in the body he described as just a heap of foam. And feelings, Vedana, you know, as bubbles in a stream. And perception as a mirage. And all the mental formations as a plantain or a banana tree that the trunk has no core. There's, there's no pith to the trunk of a banana tree. You know, it's just, uh, I don't know what they would call them, leaves. Or, so there's nothing at the center. And consciousness is a magic show. So I just started taking the very first image, the body as a lump or a heap of foam. So I'd be sitting and just feeling the body, not necessarily having the mind go to particular sensations, but just the sense of the whole body sitting. You know, and you feel those energy sensations of the body. And I would bring in that image. I would let that image settle. Oh, this really is like just a lump or a heap of foam. And the, the great realization in that was that it will never be anything else but a heap of foam. So there is nothing to become. There's nothing to want because there will never be anything other than what it is now in terms of it being just a lump of foam. And in that moment, I could feel them. I could just feel that leaning into the process completely fall away, even if it's just for a few moments. You know, but you get a taste, you get a real experiential taste of the mind of not wanting, not craving. And so right there, 
is the truth of dukkha, of the wanting. Wanting, that leaning being the cause of dukkha and the end of dukkha, which is the end of craving. You know, so just in that moment, we are experiencing really the fullness you know, of those noble truths. Does this seem clear? It was, it was really a significant understanding. So I, w- I would really encourage you just to play with it and you know, to see whether it has meaning for you as well. So the other teaching from the Buddha, which had the same effect, but it came at it from a different angle, one of the lines in the suttas that one reads very often, and it's often the statement of people uh, when they get enlightened, kind of, uh, their, their expression of their, enli- of their enlightenment, where they would say, their understanding that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. You know, so that's, I had read that so many times. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And so I always took it in reading it, you know, for years and years and years, as a description of impermanence. And yeah, that's true. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. But then I was sitting on retreat, and it's so amazing. It's such a magical world you're living in. <laughs> No, it's amazing, you know, especially for, you know, sitting for this long. It's like this great laboratory for understanding. And so I, I was sitting and just going on my practice. And then this, this line came to my mind quite spontaneously. Oh, whatever is the nature to arise will also pass away. But instead of just kind of uh, seeing it as a description I took it as an instruction. So it's almost like I dropped that sentence right into the midst of what was happening moment to moment. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And just in that moment of remembering that, or or really understanding that in the moment, Again, there was the realization, there's nothing to become. Because whatever it is that we want to become will also pass away. You get it? (laughs) It's really profound. It's like the whole teaching is right there. There is nothing to become. Because whatever it is that we think we want to become is also just part of the passing show. Whatever it is, whether it's a meditative state or some experience of the body or the mind, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So again, in that moment, I could feel them just letting go of wanting anything. And then to really see or pay attention to the quality of the, the mind in that moment that does not want anything. That's the experience of the end of craving. And you can experience, and again, even if it's just for a couple of moments, 
not wanting. We get a genuine taste of peace. It's the third noble truth. The end of suffering is the end of craving. So we can use these teachings around wanting or craving, you know, in this very moment-to-moment way and really experience the potential for freedom and experience the taste of it for ourselves. So it's not theoretical. Of course, then we forget, you know, we're back in the wanting to become this or that. But as, as some teachers say, you know, our practice is short moments many times. So it's not, it's not that we're necessarily trying to hold on to that state, which would just be another kind of craving, but just, just for a moment, there's nothing to become. You can just feel everything let go. So I, for me, it, it was really, it was very interesting, even after all these years, you know, after 50 years of practice, this line that I had read a million times drops in and psh, some kind of new understanding of it opens up. Uh, so that's the beauty of the Dharma. You know, it's just continually revealing itself in so many unexpected ways. Okay, so the question or the comment was something that I had said that every moment can be a moment of intimacy. And just if I could say something about that. So just, uh, so I've wanted to write a book for a long time. It's basically a one paragraph book. (laughs) (laughs) And the title of this book is The Myth of Intimacy. And so it's only a paragraph long, (laughs) but basically the myth is that it takes two to be intimate and people in their lives are looking for intimacy in an an other, you know, and if I'm in a relationship with someone else, that will be how I experience intimacy. But my experience and practice over all these years is the intimacy of being totally at one with experience. So when when we're totally feeling the breath or a sensation or a sound, there's no separation. And in that non-separation, really, intimacy is non-separation, you know, and which is why the practice, and this, this is what people who don't practice find it very difficult to understand, why the practice can be so completely fulfilling. You know, just, just think of how somebody you know who's not familiar with meditation, if they, were, if they would come and just see people 
Lifting, moving, placing, <laughs> lifting, moving, placing. They'd probably fall asleep just watching. <laughs> you know, what a boring thing to do. And yet, I presume that at least at times you've had the experience of being so intimate with the experience of the sensations of movement. It's why people can be walking for half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour or or sitting very long, completely fulfilled in the experience because it's so intimate, there's no separation. Um, And so it's just, it's very... it's very relieving to understand that. That intimacy doesn't depend on anyone else. It depends on how we're relating to the moment's experience. So in my early days in India, my first teacher was Anagarika Munindra. And he was a very quirky, very quirky guy. Um, and so sometimes this was in Bodh Gaya in India. And we'd be walking around the villages you know, around Bodh Gaya. And he said something that at the time I thought was pretty hokey. But I really came to, over the years of my practice, totally came to appreciate it. As we were walking about, he would say, I'm never bored. I'm friends with the clouds. I'm friends with the sun. I'm friends with the, you know, whatever was around us. And it was so true, that's how he was. He was totally engaged in the moment's experience. And over the years of practice, I really came to appreciate the power of that. Uh, yeah. So that's what I mean by every, every moment's experience can be a moment of intimacy, if we're really there, if we're connected, if we're, if we're aware, if we're mindful. Uh, you know, this, uh, some years ago I was teaching in Italy, and I was teaching at a monastery, a Catholic monastery, the group had rented it, up in the mountains uh, of Tuscany, so it was beautiful, beautiful place. The monastery, was a thousand years old. Yeah. So it made me think, you know, IMS a couple of years ago celebrated its 40th. <laughs> and we, we thought, yeah, this is great. <laughs> but it, that put it into perspective. I mean, it's quite amazing, you know, that that monastery had been there for a thousand years. And above the monastery, there was a hermitage. And there was some monks in this hermitage and you, we could go and, and kind of visit it, and they had one one little, uh, I don't know exactly what to call it. It was like a little cottage, just like a two-room, two small rooms, and monks, you know, would be staying in them, and a little walled garden. Uh, and they went in for life. You know, in, in that solitude. And maybe they, I don't know whether they joined, they went to the church for the, you know, liturgies during the day. But other than that, there was no, there was no communication. Uh, 
So I went into this you know, <laughs> the sample unit. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to get, kind of get a sense of, you know, because the thought of somebody going in for life, that commitment. And I went in and quite to my surprise, and of course, I didn't go in for life, I went in for about 15 minutes. <laughs> but what surprised me, even, I, even in the 15 minutes, I got a glimmer, a glimmer of the joy of that. And in my mind I thought, oh yes, so go into a situation like that where one's only companion is awareness. And one spends one's life in companionship with awareness. And it was so, I got so high just from the thought of it. <laughs> After a couple of weeks I might not have been high if I were actually there. but. But these retreats are kind. Of, there's a taste of that. I mean, even though it's not in you know solitude, but it's a kind of solitude here, and the power because it is so intimate with experience. You know, so there's a great joy that's possible, you know, as we drop into that. Okay. So it, it just to thank you, but uh, to me this is one of the most amazing things about the practice and retreats like this. The Dharma is vast. You know, it's just it's just so vast as we're going into the nature of the mind and consciousness and how our lives are the manifestation of that and how even after, you know, decades and decades of practice new things are continually emerging, kind of new insights and new ways of seeing things and of unhooking, which is what makes it so extraordinary. It's really an extraordinary journey. About over concentration. Well, uh, do you experience that? You don't really know where I'm at, where I'm at, like the context being lost of it. Right. Because of where I'm at 
Right. Okay, so the question was about uh, his mind can get very one-pointed, for example, on the breath and kind of absorbed in it and uh, then some difficulty in coming out and then relating even in conversation, you know, if not here but at home, uh, with somebody and kind of dis- disoriented, you know, from, from having been... Uh, really deeply immersed in that, in that experience. Um, so I would say a couple of things. Um, it might be interesting in that state, you know, when, when you're really immersed in the breath, um, just to take some periods of time within it maybe five minutes at a time or 10 minutes at a time, uh, to use some mental noting. I don't know if you've ever used that as a tool, but not only the noting of the breath itself, but also noting the mind state. And so you might be noting calm, calm, peaceful, or if there's light, you know, you might not seeing, or whatever, whatever your experience is, uh, because it could be that the concentration uh, is getting stronger than the mindfulness. You know, and just but in making these adjustments, it's like a very delicate adjustment. It's not. It doesn't take much. It, could, it, it might just take a little bit to up the level of mindfulness in that very experience. But I would include the, the noting, noticing of the mind state as well as the actual physical sensation of the breath. And, and it would just be interesting to see if then, then the transition from that to opening the eyes, standing up, and then doing whatever you do next, whether there's a more uh, unbroken continuity without that sense of uh, disjointedness.
Yeah. When, when your mind is... Like it was uh, one hour ago, it was really thinking a lot about one particular uh-huh. thing. So, so that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be worth just trying that and then seeing what, yeah. what the effect is. So fear, the question is about fear coming up about what's happening in the practice? Yes. And about continuing to practice. So f- just as an example, what, what might there be fear of? What's the experience that you might be having that, that is uh, conditioned for the fear to arise? So there are a couple of things. I've worked a lot with fear, kind of of all the afflictive emotions. Just in the course of my practice, that was the one that was most predominant in my condition. So I have a lot of experience with it. There were times when the fear was so strong in my practice where I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. It was completely irrational. You know, there was. The, the, but for whatever reason, that emotion was just, <laughs> it was let loose, you know, and so it was very powerful and uh, disorienting. So there are a couple of things. One is, it's really important to uh, become mindful of your relationship to fear itself. So, how are you relating to the fear? And we can be relating to fear in a wide variety of ways. One way, and it sounds like it might be happening to some extent, where we get identified with the fear, you know, and are really caught up in it. And then that influences, of course, uh, how we're relating to the rest of our experience because we're, we're identified with the fear. Another way, uh, which I fell into for a long time, was aversion to the fear, because it's really unpleasant. It's like the mental equivalent of a physical pain. Fear is an unpleasant emotion. Um, And so very often the fear would arise, uh, and I would be recognizing it, and even noting it, you know, fear, 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 but always with the wanting it to go away. So that illuminated a really important distinction for me, which I think is really important for all of us in practice, is to understand that there's a difference between recognition and mindfulness. 
Because very often we think if we recognize something, we're being mindful. As I was doing, I was recognizing the fear. Fear, 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 fear. But it was not being mindful because I was recognizing it through the filter of aversion, of not liking it, of wanting it to go away. And so there was a big turning point for me. And this took a long time. Uh, So, like years. (laughs) So I'm hoping what I'm saying, maybe it'll spare you a couple of years (laughs) of practice. (laughs) When I realized, or, or, actually I was doing walking meditation right outside here. It was during a retreat. Having worked with this, you know, for a long, long time, and then something just settled and I really got accepting of the feeling of fear. And so that that acceptance was expressed in the thought in my mind, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that changed everything because that was the first moment of acceptance. All that time before I knew it, I recognized it, but I was not accepting it. As soon as I dropped in, okay, fear, just like with a physical pain. Okay, it's unpleasant, but it's okay. It's okay to feel it. So that became a little mantra for me with a lot of difficult things, but particularly in this case with fear, it's okay. That became my mantra. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. The whole mass of fear washed through was amazing, something that I felt so locked in. And I had built this whole story about myself of being a fearful person and I'm gonna need 30 years of therapy to unwind this. And, you know, I was creating a whole self image and story about this fear. As soon as I could accept it, oh, it's okay. And it doesn't mean that fear doesn't come up again but the relationship to it is completely different. So that's one big piece. I would really look at how you're relating to the fear and the fear itself becomes the object, not only of your recognition, but of genuine mindfulness, which means accepting. Oh, fear is like this, fear feels like this. So that is, that could really, could really, change your relationship. So as you're going through certain meditative experiences and because it is, you know, we're deconstructing some very long established habit patterns of mind. The core the core one being this very reified sense of self. You know, our whole life has been revolving around this idea. And so meditation is like beginning to loosen that a bit. So it can be, <laughs> it can get fearful at times. You know, we're, in, we're kind of in unknown territory very often. So learning how to be okay with fear allows us to settle into that experience unfolding. Okay, there's one other piece. Sometimes the fear gets overwhelming, you know, and, you know, we try to really be with it and be mindful of it and get okay with it, 
But for whatever reason, at some particular time, you know, because of what may be happening, we don't have the capacity at that time to open to the fear itself. Right? We really feel the mind is getting out of balance. So when that happens, then it can be helpful just to back off a little bit, you know, and to take oneself out of uh, that particular experience. So if you're sitting, it might be, okay, go for a walk, or maybe open to sounds or listening, or just to really change, uh, to change the arena of your experience in a way that brings you back to some kind of balance. And then when you feel balanced and you're doing your practice and you go back into it, to be willing to enter into it a little bit and see whether you can stay balanced even in the experience of the fear. But that mental balance in the experience is what's important. And this would be good to discuss, you know, with whoever your teachers are, uh, because sometimes they can see whether, sometimes people think they're out of balance, you know, or really uh, anxious about what's happening, but the teacher can very often see whether it's really okay, and they would encourage you to stay with it, open to it, be with the fear, it's okay. Or they may say, yeah, you're, you're getting really out of balance here, you need, to, you need to move away from that for a while. So those are the two different, but it's, it's not uncommon. You know, so there's nothing, the fact that fear is arising in and of itself is not a problem. Because it it's commonly arises at different times. So you can try the magic mantra. It's okay. It's okay. An image which might help you. <laughs> We're five minutes over. <laughs> okay. Just an image. Uh, this might be a nice note to end on. An image which I found helpful in dealing with difficult mind states and emotions, and fear is a good example, but there are many others. How would you be with a child who's really afraid? I think instinctively we would all know the appropriate way to be with a child. You know, if a child is really scared, we'd probably just be there. And either in words or just through how we are, we, we would be expressing that sense, okay, it's okay. You know, we wouldn't be denying it. We would say, oh no, you're not really feeling that. And, and we wouldn't probably say, well, just stop it. <laughs> Or you shouldn't be feeling that. No, we would know. We would just be there. You know, it's like putting our arm around the child and supporting the child for just being in the experience with a place of safety. You know, trying to create a place of safety for the experience. I think I think we all know this very instinctively. You know, 
But what's interesting is we know it, it's like we know what to do if that were a child, but we don't apply it to ourselves. You know, then when it's, we're the ones who are caught up in the difficult emotion, we can get all tangled up in our reactivity to it. Um, So it's, you know, you you might just see if that image is of some help. Okay. Uh, it's easy. I mean, I could go on, and we could go on. Uh, but if we did, when I went go back into the staff room with my colleagues, I'd be hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> It's really a delight. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.